Well, some of you history buffs will probably enjoy this introduction here. May 19th, 1780. Who was alive? Oh, not even anybody joking. Okay, good deal. May 19th, 1780. It's known as the dark day of New England. On that day, around 10 a.m., the sky over Hartford, Connecticut, and other areas of New England darkened ominously. Some of the citizens, glancing out their windows, they seriously feared that this was the end, that it had happened, that it had begun. One man is reported to have, say, to have said, it was so terribly dark that we could not see our hand before us. And a legislative meeting was in progress at the time of this ominous darkness and a man named Abraham Davenport was the judge preceding that legislative meeting. And he made this statement. He said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish candles to be brought. I admire that comment. Now, whatever phenomena or whatever was going on on May 19, 1780 to cause this ominous darkness, that honestly is irrelevant. The response of Abraham Davenport, though, is the same response that we as Christians should have concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's coming back. And unlike the unpleasant topics that we've had to deal with throughout the chapter of Mark 13. Today's topic is much more joyous, but we need to take heed because there's a warning here for us as Christians. We've been working our way through the book of Mark for over a year now, and we've come to this subsection of Jesus' Jerusalem ministry. It's famously called the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to finish that up today. After today, we only have three chapters left in the book of Mark. And this morning, I want to focus on this idea that the text presents to us that Jesus is coming back. Someone say hallelujah. 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 He is coming back. Now, that's the big idea from our text today. And honestly, this is the event that chapter 13 has been driving to. All of the pain and all of the horror and all of the, the things that we have seen throughout the chapter through the coming tribulation and the Antichrist and the destruction of the temple and all that that's been coming, it's driving to this event that Jesus returns. He will not leave the world as devastated as it will be. He's coming back. And I want to share three truths about Jesus' return from the text this morning. So if you haven't already, turn book of Mark chapter 13, and I want to reread verses 24, starting in verse 24, and here's your first point this morning before I get there. Point number one, Jesus' return will be unmistakable, so be assured. Jesus' return will be unmistakable, so be assured. Pick up the text in verse 24 with me. The author, Mark, writes, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
Mark starts off by telling us after those days, after the tribulation, the reference to what we've been studying in the previous verses, after the abomination of desolation that kicks off the tribulation, we talked about that last week, and there's some debate on this, exactly what Mark is referring to, but as we read through the narrative, I believe what he means here is after that three and a half years of great tribulation, after that, when that has played itself through, when the judgment of God and the, the rampant wickedness of sin has run its course, after that, Jesus returns. Look at verse 25. And they will see, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The use of the title Son of Man here, we've talked about this before, but just as, as to refresh your memory, this is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, when the Son of Man, Jesus, at that time the coming Messiah, is given glory and dominion and a kingdom. That's Daniel 7, 14. It's a reference, that term, Son of Man, a reference to his humanity and thus a reference to his humility. It was actually Jesus' favorite term when talking about himself, Son of Man, a reference to his humanity and a reference to his humility. The divine became human. The point is, this Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, he returns. After all the pain and sorrow and sin that have marked the last three and a half years of the tribulation, Jesus returns, and his return is marked by a cataclysmic event. Go back to verse 24. But in those days... After the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now, I think we need to take these verses together, meaning I don't think Jesus is saying this is going to happen before I return. I believe what he's saying here as we read the passage is this is going to happen as I return. He's saying as he's coming, this celestial phenomena, if you want to call it, will be happening. The sun goes dark. The moon doesn't give its light, and we know that why, because the sun's dark. The moon won't give its light, and the stars fall. Jesus is returning on the clouds. It's as if the veil that hides the spiritual world is peeled back, and nature goes berserk. Doesn't even know what to do. Isn't it interesting? Human history began with light, Genesis 1. Human history ends with light removed. Jesus returns. Our king comes riding on the clouds. And what's the first thing, he, the first thing that he does? Look at verse 27. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. At the end of time, when Jesus returns, he sends out his angels who will gather those who are truly his. That's what the term the elect means right there. It's those who are truly his. We talked about the elect and what that referred to last week, believers in Jesus Christ. Now, this event, sending out angels to gather people, what exactly is Jesus talking about? What's going on here? Well, there's a couple schools of thought on this. First, the angels will gather those who trusted him during the time of the tribulation. In other words, some people think that Christians that are living today will already be gone 
But other people will come to know Christ during the tribulation, and the angels are gathering those believers who came to Christ during the tribulation. So this would include the 144,000 Jews that's mentioned in Revelation chapter 7. It would include any Gentiles who came to faith during the tribulation. So that's one idea that might be going on there, those that came to salvation during the tribulation. But another view considers this event to be what Christians have often referred to as the rapture. The rapture is an idea that comes out of 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17 read like this. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a shout of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So some believe that this event here in Mark 13, 27 is that event spoken of in 1 Thessalonians 4, the rapture when Christians go up to meet Jesus in the air. A lot of debate on this. A lot of different ideas on the rapture, the timing of that, when it will happen, the end times. Some people believe the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. Some believe it's going to come right in the middle. Some people believe near the end, and some people believe at the very end. The fact of the matter is we're not given a clear word from the scripture as to when it will happen. We're just not. I know that you probably have been brought up to believe a certain way, and the truth is this, that we just don't know. We don't know when God's going to do this event called the rapture. It could be what he's talking about here in Mark 13. It could be some, something different. Now, the reference here in scriptures, when he says he will send out his angels to gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth, and to the ends of heaven, that language there, I believe the best way to understand that is that it's poetic language letting us know that all believers everywhere on the earth will be gathered to the Lord. And just a side note on this, verse 27. It says that he, the Son of Man, Jesus, will send out his angels. Now, that's significant for this reason. In the Old Testament, the one who sent angels was Yahweh, God. God controls angels. And this is strongly suggestive of the divinity of Jesus. If Jesus has commanded the angels, and only God commands angels, then the logical conclusion is that Jesus is God. Just throwing that out there, reminding you of our theme of the book that Mark is about the divine servant, Jesus is God, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. He has control even over the angels. But the point that I'm trying to make in this text is that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. It will be unmistakable. You will not confuse this with any other event. You know, every year, our family, probably like your family, we like to go out and watch fireworks on the 4th of July because we love sitting out in the heat and the bugs. Actually, we tolerate the heat and the bugs because we're so excited to stay up really late, watch fireworks, and then try to get kids down after that. But we go watch fireworks popping off, and sometimes... As we're out there, a few fireworks will pop together, and we start to think, oh, it's the finale. And the finale, of course, is the best part. When you've got loads of fireworks popping off at the same time, it's the best part. We love it. 
But we quickly realize, oh, not yet. It's just a couple fireworks popping off together, and we continue watching until the finale hits, and it's unmistakable. That's the finale. Yeah, that's why we did this and stayed up late, and yeah, fought the bugs in the heat. Right here. Friends, Christ's return will be like that. It will be unmistakable. You will not confuse it with any other event. When the clouds part and the sun darkens and the moon won't shine and the stars go ballistic, if we're on planet Earth at that time, we will see our Savior and we will have no doubt that it's him. This passage, by the way, contrasts last week's passage Jesus warned his disciples last week not to be deceived, not to believe any report of a false Christ. If someone comes to you and says, here's the Christ, or he's over here, Jesus told them, don't believe it. Even though, if we live through the tribulation, we will be very tempted to believe that it's him because we'll be so desperate for our Savior. But Jesus is warning us, don't believe it. Don't believe it. When he does come, the universe responds. It's like the universe is announcing, this is the real Christ, the one you've been waiting for. All will know that Jesus is coming. There'll be no one on planet Earth. There will be no one who will look up and see this event and think to themselves, huh, I wonder if that's Jesus. We will know. All will know that it's him. So how do we respond to this? Be assured. Be assured of his coming. Don't doubt Jesus' second coming. Whether we live through the tribulation or not, we're going to see hard times in our life. You've already seen hard times in your life. We're going to see hard times in our life, and we will question, where's Jesus in this? Why hasn't he come yet? Or perhaps the nagging question, is he coming? You know, I remember when I was much younger, I remember watching the news as the Twin Towers collapsed after being hit by planes. And I remember thinking back then, come Lord Jesus. We will see things and experience things that cause us to wonder, where is he? But be assured, he's coming. Don't lose faith. Don't succumb to fear and doubt. Remain faithful because he's coming. And be assured of this. He's not going to leave you here. He won't. For those who put their faith in Jesus and are still on the earth when this happens, he's sending his angels to come get you. He's not going to leave you. I'm talking about an escort. If we're here, we get angels escorting us to heaven. That's awesome. He's not going to forget us. You are important enough to him for him to send you an angel because your Savior loves you that much. One other application I want to draw from this text. I want to ask this question. I said just a second ago, I said, for those who put their faith in Jesus and are still on the earth, an angel is going to come get them. So my question is, is an angel coming to get you? The angels are only coming to get the elect. The angels are only coming to get those who are truly Jesus's. Does that include you? 
Have you taken that step of faith and trusted Jesus as your Savior? Let's go back to what the Bible says. The Bible says we have a problem. God is holy and we are sinful. We can't go to be with him. We can't have that angel escort because we're dead in our sins, Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our relationship with him is broken, but it gets worse than that. If we die in this sinful state, we're separated from him forever in hell. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's death and hell forever separated with God. But Romans 6.23 goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's why Jesus came to die on the cross. He took the penalty that was meant for us. He paid the debt, but we still have to accept him. It's not automatic. We still have to accept this payment that he made in order for the transaction to be complete, which is why Romans 10.9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question is, will you receive his offering? Is an angel coming for you? If not, won't you come to know Christ today? I'll be around after service. If you want to know more, please come find me. But Jesus' return will be unmistakable, so be assured. Here's your second point. Jesus' return is certain, so trust him. It's unmistakable, yes, but it's certain. Look at verse 28. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. Now, just a quick word about fig trees. Fig trees in Palestine are one of the few kinds of trees that change with the seasons. And we see this happen all the time because we live in an area where many trees change with season, with the season, but not in Palestine. Fig trees are one of the few that actually lose their leaves in fall. Also, fig trees, their leaves bloom a little bit later than other trees. They bloom in late spring. So when a fig tree begins to bloom, the people knew summer's coming. Summer is right around the corner. It would have been something that the disciples and really all the people of Palestine, they just understood. They grew up with it. You know when the fig tree blooms, summer is coming. Look at verse 29. What is Jesus saying then? He says, so also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. So the fig tree here is a parable. And there's a lot of debate on this. Some people believe that this fig tree is a reference to Israel. And they say that because last time Jesus dealt with a fig tree, he was referring to Israel. Mark eleven twelve, Jesus curses the fig tree for not having fruit. And it was a parable about Israel and Jerusalem and the destruction that was coming. You might remember that. But this is a different fig tree, a different parable. And if we look at this fig tree and we use the surrounding verses to help us interpret it, I believe what Jesus is saying here is just a simple illustration. Just as the budding leaves of the fig tree show that summer is near, so the events that Jesus has been talking about show that his coming is near. I think that's all he's saying there. Jesus is saying, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the horrible events that follow it, you know that he's coming soon. In fact, the text says, at the very gates. And another word for that word gates could be the word door. He's standing at the door. What do we do with doors? We go in and out of them. We go from one place to another. So what is Jesus saying here? I'm standing at the door of heaven. When you see these things taking place, I'm about to walk through that door. 
I'm about to enter my creation. Now look at verse 30. This can be a little confusing, but Jesus says here, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. What is he talking about there? Because we've been talking about future. This was a discussion that happened 2,000 years ago, and Jesus says here, this generation will not pass away. Well, don't forget, this discussion in Mark 13, this Olivet Discourse, has both a near and a far interpretation. Don't forget that, near and far interpretation. The near interpretation, as I've been saying over the past several weeks, is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., In the Old Testament, a generation was considered about 40 years. Now, that doesn't mean people only lived to 40. It means that it was a rough estimate of time for one generation to grow up and become self-sustaining. And an example of this would be the generation that left Egypt. And after they sinned and they didn't go into the promised land like God told them, God gave them what? 40 years raise up the next generation. They weren't going to get into the promised land, but the generation behind them was. So this idea of a generation's around 40 years comes from the Old Testament. And interestingly enough, Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem around 33 AD, and it happened 70 AD, just shy of 40 years. So when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things take place, he's, that's what he's likely referring to, the, imputation, the uh, uh, inter- interpretation of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And let me say, that would just make sense. Many people alive, 33 AD, while Jesus is talking about this, would still be alive in 70 AD. They would, they would live to see that destruction. But Jesus explains all that, and then he gives us a promise. Look at this. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. The two things that we as human beings know for certainty should be there tomorrow, heaven and earth, are less certain than Jesus' words. And you can imagine... Just think about putting yourself in the disciples' shoes as they're hearing about this. They're hearing about the destruction of their home. Worse than that, they're hearing about the destruction of the temple, the place they associate with Yahweh. And you can imagine the fear that you might feel when Jesus is saying, your generation is going to live to see this. So he lands with a promise. Take courage. My words, everything I've been telling you from the bad to the good, are not going to pass away. My words are a foundation to stand on. And this supports the point. Jesus' return is certain because his words are certain. Jesus never says anything that doesn't come to pass. When Jesus says it will happen, it will happen. His words are an assurance of what's to come. Jesus' return is certain. And I was thinking about that this week and asking myself, to what could I compare the certainty of Jesus' return? Is anything in life really certain? Just think about that. Is anything in life really certain? Health is not certain. Money is not certain. 
Jobs are not certain. Relationships are not certain. You know, Ben Franklin said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. But even in that, Jesus could come before I die. My death isn't even certain. And lo and behold, the IRS could make a mistake. <laughs> taxes... <laughs> Taxes aren't even certain. Even tomorrow is not certain. This text tells me that one day the sun will go dark. That could be today. Hallelujah come Lord Jesus. The sun may not rise tomorrow. Nothing in this life is certain. What can we compare the return to Jesus? We can't compare it to anything, and that's the point, my friends, Jesus' imminent return is more certain than anything we know on planet Earth. You can trust it. You can trust it. Jesus is coming back, so trust him. There is no doubt that he is coming back. And by the way, we can be assured of his coming because he came the first time he said he was going to. He came the first time he prophesied of his coming. Genesis 3.15, he will bruise the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7.14, a virgin shall conceive. Micah 5.2, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. All throughout the Old Testament, God spoke over and over and over again, the Messiah is coming, and he came, promise kept. God always keeps his promise. He told us he is coming. We could trust him. He came. He tells us he's coming back. We can trust him because he's coming back. And by the way, this has enormous implications on our everyday lives. If we can trust every word that Christ says, that gives us security beyond anything this world can offer. And that leads to a very important question that we should ask ourselves daily. What am I trusting in apart from Christ? It's not as trustworthy as he is. What are you putting your trust in? And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, he says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure? Where's your trust? That passage in Matthew, by the way, that's not saying don't invest your money. It's not saying don't build relationships. It's not saying don't work hard and try to better yourself. It's not saying any of that. It's simply saying don't make those things your treasure. Don't prize those things higher than Christ. Don't put trust in those things. Trust in Jesus. Put Christ first. Seek him first. Make Jesus your treasure. So recognize, my church, recognize where in your life you are treasuring things above Jesus. Where in my life am I treasuring things above Jesus? And when God reveals those to you, repent and choose to trust him instead. He promised he would come. And the first time, he did. He promises to come a second time, and he will. He promises to be with us always, and he is. 
He promises to fight our battles, and he does. He, promise, he promises that his plans will not be thwarted, and they won't. Now, those are some huge promises. Can anyone in this room keep those? Not me. But Jesus keeps his promises. You know, we see commercial advertisements all the time promising a better, fuller life if you just buy their product. I mean, just look at the actors on the commercial. They're happy, so will you. And the truth is, do these products deliver what they promise? Varying degrees of satisfaction for a time till the next great product comes out. Friends, those advertising promises, they, they, they offer big, but they deliver low. But that's not like the promises of Jesus Christ. He offers high. He delivers high. His promises are sure. They are certain. And we can trust him. You know, we will reap high dividends both in this life and in the life to follow if we trust Jesus. We will reap high dividends, both in this life and the life to follow. What am I saying there? We will reap high dividends in this life, not through stuff, but through peace, security, assurance, love. And we will reap high dividends in eternity because we leave this passing world behind and we go to be with him forever. Trust him. His word is certain. Last point. We've been looking at three truths about Jesus Christ's return. His return will be unmistakable. His return will be certain. And finally, point number three, his precise return cannot be known, so stay awake. Jesus' precise return cannot be known, so stay awake. Follow along with me in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Finally, in the discussion that we've been having in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse, finally Jesus gets to their question. You might remember the disciples asked him, when will these things be? And he hasn't answered up till this point, And he finally gets to the answer. And we're a bit disappointed. Because he tells us no one knows. No human. No angel. Not even the sun. Now, I believe we should interpret that within the context of Jesus' humanity. Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. Remember Philippians 2.7, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus set aside his divine power while on earth, and he operated through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So I believe when Jesus says here, the son doesn't even know, I believe he's referring to his present situation as he's speaking to them in his human form. I believe now he knows, as he, now that he's been glorified and sits at their father's right hand. But regardless, here's the point. If the son didn't even know when all this was happening, we should not stress over when. If the son didn't know when all this was going to take place, we should not stress over when. There's a point in Acts, Acts chapter 1, 6 and 7. Right before Jesus ascends, the disciples gather and they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore your kingdom to Israel? And Jesus answered them and says, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his authority. It's not for us to know. Don't stress over the when. We're not meant to know. You can't put this event on your calendar. We have no way of knowing, so don't stress about it. Don't try to figure it out. You know there are people who have tried, and people will continue to try. But friends, all who try to figure out the timing of Christ's return are wasting precious time. What should we be doing instead? Jesus tells us. He says, be on your guard. Keep awake. And then to illustrate that point, he goes into another parable here. It's the one about the master that leaves the home. He leaves the servants in charge. And in those days, this would happen. A master of the house, he would get ready and he would leave and he would give instructions to his servants. And they were expected to carry out the master's instructions until the master got back. And they didn't have phones back then. There was no text, hey, I'm on my way. They just had to keep watch and do what the master told them to do. He would simply arrive whenever he arrived. Jesus says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now, those four time frames, the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, and at the morning, they all coincide with, with four watches of the night that was specified by the Romans. The Romans would have four watches, and they would take turns watching throughout the night, and that's what that points to. But note he says this, and what I say to you, I say to all. And that all goes beyond the four disciples who've been listening to him all through chapter 13. You'll remember at the start of chapter 13, it was Peter, James, John, and Andrew who came to him and asked him, when will these things be? What will be the sign? We get to the end of chapter 13, and Jesus says, this is not meant for just you, but it's meant for all. All. That's you, and that's me. 2,000 years later, Jesus is speaking to us through the text. Stay awake. Stay awake. That's his message. Don't worry about the when. Worry about the what. What we should be doing. Stay awake. He's coming. We know he's coming, but we don't know precisely when. You know, it used to be, speaking of phones, used to be when somebody was traveling to come see you, you'd have an approximate time when they were going to get there, but you never knew precisely when. I remember as a kid, 
you know, my parents would tell me, hey, you know, your grandparents or your aunts or your uncles or somebody we love is coming to visit us. And our sibling, my siblings and I, we would get so excited and we'd run to the window to look at the driveway. When is their vehicle going to pull up? But we wouldn't know precisely when. We'd watch out the window until we got distracted. And we would go to our parents, when are they going to get here? Soon would be their answer. You get the point. He's coming soon. Scripture says in Revelation 22, 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, that was written some 2,000 years ago. Still, he's coming soon. The problem is our definition of soon may not match his definition of soon. Will it happen in our lifetime? I don't know. The point is to be ready because it could. Now, what does it mean to be ready? What does it mean to stay awake, as Jesus says here? Physically, of course, that phrase, stays awake, does mean to simply not be sleeping. But how does Jesus mean it here? How do we stay awake and be watchful for his return? Does it mean we should keep our eyes on the sky just waiting for the clouds to part and the sun to go dark and the stars to go bananas? That would be silly. The parable tells us exactly what Jesus means here. It clues us in to what he's talking about. When the master of the house left, he put his servants in charge. In charge of what? In charge of managing the house. They were to work faithfully in his absence. In what ways has Jesus left us to manage the earth. How do we stay awake? We stay awake by being about the master's work, both within us and without. What do I mean by that? First, be affected by the master's work within you. And by that I mean attend to your own heart with the message of the gospel. Take time every day to remind yourself of the work that Jesus did. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life of righteousness for you. He submitted himself to a gruesome public death, and he rose again in triumph over sin and death. See that every day. Think about that every day. Immerse yourself in that every day, and that's the way we are changed. Why? Because the gospel message has implications for your life right down to the very details. It's not just the thing we believe to become a Christian. It's the thing that we believe to live as a Christian. Without the gospel, without the gospel, we're still in our sins. Without the gospel, we're eaten up by guilt, and we either cling to rules and try to follow some sort of pattern of do's and don'ts just to live with ourselves, or we throw all the rules out the window and we just do whatever we want. Devil may care. But don't you see, with the gospel, Jesus having paid for our sins and lived the perfect life we couldn't live, we now come to the point where we can live with who we are because Jesus paid for our bad and gave us his good. 
we can accept that we are more horrible than we could possibly imagine, yet deeply loved and accepted by the greatest being in the universe. When we realize that, the transforming work of the gospel frees us like nothing else. What Jesus wants to do inwardly is make you see that you are more sinful than you can possibly imagine, but you're loved. You're wretched, but you're desired. You're despicable, but you're precious in his sight. And when we combine those two ideas, which come together at the cross, it frees us from ourselves. It does work inside of us that we could never do on our own. And that's the work he wants to do in you and in me. That's the first thing we do to stay awake. But the second thing is this. We be about the master's work outside of us. He gave us a job to do. Matthew 28, make disciples. And that includes evangelizing within your sphere of influence, your family, your neighbors, your fellow employees, and so on. It means supporting global mission efforts to one degree or another. It means knowing your Bible well so you can instruct others in everything he commands us, Matthew 28. And in addition to that, it means working alongside the other servants. There were servants, plural, in the parable. Working alongside the other servants, being involved in your local church, being involved in small group, building Christ-honoring relationships so that you can help refine and be refined yourself. When we are affected by the work of the master and when we're doing the work of the master, we're staying awake. We're being faithful, and when he comes, he will find us awake and productive. On the flip side, if we ignore our own spiritual growth, if we neglect the work that he has done and wants to do within us, and if we fail to get involved in the local church and in small group and in evangelism and missions and so forth, he will return and find us asleep on the job. What does that mean? That we're not saved? No, Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. It doesn't mean that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 39. However, it does mean loss of reward. In ancient times, a servant caught sleeping on the job would be punished. When Christ returns, those who are not being diligent about their Christian walk will suffer loss of reward. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15 speak to this. It says... If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Don't be caught sleeping, church. Be about the master's work within you and without. You know the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is this, Jesus calls us to stay awake and he modeled that for us. He modeled that every day of his life, but he modeled that specifically in the garden. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus was speaking these words in Mark 13, he was very aware of the coming cross. It was mere days away. The event that would take his life was mere days away. And the night before that event, the night before he went to the cross, he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he told his disciples to do what? Remain and watch. But what did they do? They fell asleep. 
They didn't remain and watch. They didn't stay awake and pray alongside their Savior. They left him alone in his agony. And yet, he didn't abandon them. He remained faithful. He remained vigilant. He fought the battle in the garden, choosing to die for those who didn't stay awake. He fought the battle for them, and he fought the battle for you and me. Jesus stayed awake when you and I fell asleep. Stay awake, church. Stay awake by resting in his finished work and taking that work to a world that desperately needs him. On New England's dark day, Abraham Davenport said, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Christ could return any day. If he doesn't come back today, that's no reason to stop serving him. If he does come back today, let's choose to be found doing our duty. Stay awake, church.